from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is Ag Day. It's convention time. We head to Indy in the 95th annual FFA convention for a look at the future. What's the secret to getting more out of your corn? Our biggest thing is tell guys, you know, have patience, wait till the time is right. Some top growers give you their recipe for high yields. Investigators uncover a major beef and pork theft ring. We're surprising how, how brazen and how wide scale it really was. As water levels on the Mississippi River continue to drop. So certainly we are seeing major disruptions. And drought conditions across the country continue to rise. The latest right now on Ag Day. Good morning, I'm Clinton Griffiths. Water levels are so low right now on the Mississippi River that some grain terminals are no longer tanking in corn and soybeans. The river now near record lows with one gauge in New Orleans registering just three feet above sea level. Now let's look at that gauge, courtesy of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. At least two Cargill grain terminals are announcing they're not taking any more corn and soybeans right now due to the low water levels. They're located in Keithsburg, Illinois and Hickman, Kentucky. The grain elevator in Hickman posting on its website it will not be taking grain until the river levels change. Now it says Hickman Harbor was closed due to low water and they are filling their remaining space. In Wycliffe, Kentucky, the river reached nearly five feet below the low water threshold for the gauge, dropping below the previous all-time low, set way back in 1939. The area just south of where the Ohio River flows into the Mississippi near Cairo, Illinois. And more records could fall soon. To put a little historical perspective on that, as you head up into Missouri, New Madrid and Carothersville, Missouri, previous records were set during the drought of 2012. As you move further downstream, Osceola, Arkansas, Memphis, Tennessee, previous records have been set in July 1988. I've just mentioned two historic droughts, 1988 and 2012, water levels lower than those two historic droughts. As the Mississippi River continues to drop, drought across the country increases. Now, taking a look at the latest drought monitor, drought now covering more than 62% of the continental U.S. That's more than a 3% increase from just last week and the highest it's been since 2012. The population affected also increased significantly to more than 145 million people. But there is the potential for some rain in areas battling drought. Meteorologist Andrew Whitmire joins us with more. That's right. We're watching the potential here for some saturated soils due to some heavier rainfall embedded in a few of these thunderstorms. The only downfall, though, is a few of those could become strong and or severe. And I'm sure the western half of Texas wishes it was more them than the eastern half of Texas. But that's the cards we are dealt from good old Mother Nature here as we go on throughout this Friday. And then as we head towards Saturday, we're going to see that shift a little bit eastward into parts of Louisiana and even up towards Jackson, Mississippi. Looking at the future radar here throughout the afternoon, again, heavy rainfall embedded where those thunderstorms that do decide to set up and they will continue to track their way eastward as well as we're still going to be dealing with a low pressure system that's going to continue to develop and work its way again up along parts of the Tennessee and even Ohio River Valley as we go throughout this Halloween weekend. Let's take a look at that rainfall estimate here again, where those showers and thunderstorms do decide to set up. They could produce anywhere from two to four inches of rainfall with isolated local amounts uh, where that could be even a little bit higher than that 
And we're going to see that spreading up across parts of the uh, upper Midwest and parts of the Great Lakes states, at least for the potential for some additional rainfall as we close out this Halloween weekend. And check out John Bergen putting a wrap on harvest in Carmen, Manitoba. John's asking, are you even done with Harvest 22 if you don't finish with a full pass and a full green cart? Hope you had a terrific harvest, John. I'll more near our forecast coming up. Investigators in Nebraska say they've uncovered a multi-million dollar theft ring targeting meatpacking plants in six Midwestern states. The Lancaster County, Nebraska Sheriff's Office says it began an investigation into several stolen semi-trailers and loads of frozen beef that were happening in the state, including in Lancaster County. Since June of last year, the Sheriff's Office, along with the Department of Homeland Security, has identified 45 thefts covering Nebraska, Iowa, Minnesota, North and South Dakota, and Wisconsin. The investigators say they discovered a highly sophisticated, organized criminal enterprise based out of Miami, Florida, that targeted beef and pork packing plants in those six Midwestern states. These men would, would be driving up here with uh, just tractors, just the power units of a semi-tractor trailer, and then they would look for potential areas where they could steal tractors. So, or, I'm sorry, steal trailers. And they, they knew what to look for, they knew where to look, where trailers would be staged for transport. And they would just uh, drive in, hook up to a trailer and take off. Um, in some cases, they had false bills of lading um, to, to justify their load. Now, last week, investigators arrested three Miami men on suspicion of transporting stolen goods and money laundering. Sheriff Wagner says right now they don't know where the stolen beef was ending up, but they say the price tag so far on the losses adds up to $9 million. The recipe for high yields on Ag Day is brought to you by Tendovo Soybean Herbicide, raising the pre-emergence bar one clean row at a time. See how Tendovo delivers weed control without compromise at SyngentaUS.com backslash Tendovo. Every farmer wants to raise the highest yields possible, right? Well, today, Ag Day's Michelle Rook finds out what farmers and agronomists include in their recipe for high yields. Clint, the national yield curves have continued to improve year after year for U.S. farmers through the use of technology and improved genetics. However, the real secret for the most successful farmers seems to be doing a better job with the basic agronomic principles, including a longtime National Corn Growers Association yield contest winner. Raising high-yielding corn is a challenge every year, but especially corn on corn. However, 12-time NCGA yield contest winner Kevin Kelb seems to have it mastered, hitting 400 bushels per acre on test plots on his farm. As he harvests this year's crop, he's actually working on his plan for 2023. You know, we're corn on corn, so our biggest job to do is, uh, the main thing we do is try to, to, to handle this residue, you know, on our high-yielding corn. Um, so. That's kind of the reason why we run the 870 disc ripper uh, to help bury that trash really good. So feed the microbes to get it going for next spring so there's no really residue left over because that's where a lot of your disease comes from, from the residue. Kelb is shooting for the non-irrigated corn record of 443 bushels per acre and says, along with picking the right genetics, he advises waiting for ideal weather conditions for planting. He says the flood in 2017 changed his mind about early planting. 
as he finished the end of April and then lost the crop. And we started planting May 17th that year on a replant and ended up being our best crop ever. And um, just because of being so uniform stand all the way through, it never had to go through bad weather. So, so our, our biggest thing is tell guys, you know, have patience, wait till the time is right. Agronomists agree that getting the crop off to a good start at planting time is key, and you only get one chance to do it right. And really good seed to soil contact in the right conditions, right? So um, we, we spent a lot of money on the equipment and the seed. Let's, let's get it in there and give it the best chance to get going. During the growing season, Lix's proper plant nutrition sets the tone for strong yields. We need to start out with really good fertility, making sure that you know we're not short on um, phosphorus, potassium, make sure our pH is in the right place. Kalb monitors his plant fertility and health in season so he can feed the plant and preserve the crop's yield potential. You know, pull tissue samples, that's our key. You know, we, that's our guideline, that's our cheat sheet. Tissue samples tell us exactly what the plant needs. And it may take four or five years till you get used to knowing how to read them and what the plant needs. But, you know, tissue samples is huge. And, um, you know, like I said, we, we, we run a lot of fungicides, you know. For every field gets at least two shots. And then our high yielding stuff will get three shots of fungicide to keep that plant healthy. Lick says that's all part of a complete agronomic plan that protects the plant and yield throughout the growing season. For the most part, that's paying attention to weed management, uh, insects, and diseases and if we need to um, you know getting out there with the herbicides uh, fungicides insecticides to make sure that we have that control he says once growers have the basics mastered they can start tweaking their agronomic system to increase their yields the real trick is to achieve their yield goals while at the same time optimizing profitability all right thanks michelle now dairy prices are holding up Michelle will return to dig into those numbers next in our market report. And later we head to the FFA convention in Indianapolis where students are looking to the future. Dairy prices remain strong despite the headwinds from higher grains. Michelle Rook joins us now with a look at the latest in those markets. Joining us with this morning's market analysis, Brian Doherty with Total Farm Marketing. Let's talk about this milk market. We've had a pretty good pullback off the highs on some of it's been recessionary fears. Do you think we're getting close to a bottom, Brian? Uh, we do. If you look at just about all commodity markets, it took that same drop off at the same time in mid-summer, late June. The milk market's the only one to not have recovered, and yet we're not increasing the herd. We're not increasing the production expectations in the years ahead the biggest issue that we continue to hear surface is labor issues dairies find enough labor so that if they even think about expanding they can expand so like all industries struggling with that um, products have come down in value enough butter has been high but that started to crack a little bit but the other products in particular uh, cheese prices have really come down to a level here where it should attract end user buying we can't believe the recessionary talk is that negative at these current price levels and in fact if you look where the dollar is off lately we wouldn't be surprised to see export activity pick up and demand for the holiday time period is going to be coming up so can we get those back months back above twenty dollars here near term yeah we think we can we don't think that's a tall task for the milk market um, 
what what needs to happen is you do need some money flow. You need some excitement in that market. Right now, the bears are in control. And like any market, when they sell high and then it drops off and they sell again, they've got a good position there. They're not being forced out of their short positions. If we can see that cheese market pick up and see some demand or at least perceptive demand move into the marketplace, we think there's probably a quick rally. Now, don't get your hopes up that we're going to see $25 milk. At the same time, we saw $25 milk. We saw $12 wheat. Wheat is nowhere near $12, and corn is nowhere near $7.67 at these kind of high peaks. But into the low to mid-20s would be very a, a very reasonable expectation for the milk market. And a good place to do some hedging then. Well, take a defensive posture, you bet. Good place to buy puts, hedging, sell calls, buy puts, sell calls, all these strategies that defend against lower prices. We appreciate your analysis as always. Uh, Brian Doherty with Total Farm Marketing. We'll have more Ag Day and Ag Weather coming up. To discuss marketing strategies, call 800-334-9779. Ag Day is brought to you by MetLife Investment Management's Agricultural Finance Group. MetLife Investment Management is positioned to help you grow your business with a competitive farm, ranch, and agribusiness loan. To learn more, visit investments.metlife.com backslash agriculture. Meteorologist Andrew Whitmire joining us to start with a look at the root zone moisture map. And we've seen this expand a bit in different places, but the Four Corners region getting a little bit of blue on that map. They are, which is good news for them. But again, a change in this root zone map. If you look along the east coast, uh, they're dealing with more of those reds, very dry even extreme in some spots there across parts of the Carolinas. Now looking at the root zone here again, we are watching uh, for the more development of that expansion there of some drier conditions across much of the country. In fact, as we take a look at the drought monitor, the US drought monitor, uh, which was updated today, but this is one week ago here just before the changes were made uh, on this uh, day here. And uh, we again, we were seeing some dry conditions out across parts of the central plains, not nearly as dry though up along parts of the eastern coast of it. Now as we go throughout that uh, current uh, map here, Again, uh, we're going to see that kind of expanding here as we uh, work our way further off towards the east and even up across uh, parts of the Great Lakes area. Meanwhile, we continue to track some heavy precipitation in spots here over the next uh, several days here as some several low pressure systems will likely work their way through parts of the uh, southern plains and even parts of the deep south, bring with it some added moisture, uh, but still not a lot of relief there for much of the uh, Great Lakes and eastern coast. Uh, the other systems that we're going to be watching is the dip in the jet stream up across the Pacific Northwest. That's going to increase snow potential for the higher elevations as well as bring with it some pockets of some heavier rainfall. The good news, though, not really looking at a, a heavy flooding rainfall event, just enough to wet the soils again for parts of the Pacific Northwest. And you'll see this here showing up here on the jet stream here as we go throughout the end of October and into the start of November. We're going to be watching kind of this dip in the jet stream, this trough, and that's going to allow for several systems to kind of impact parts of the western coastline here as we turn that calendar over into November. Walking through the future radar here on this Friday, all eyes again on Texas with this low pressure system that's going to create the potential for pockets of heavy rain across parts of central and eastern Texas and eventually working its way across parts of Louisiana, even getting up into a Mississippi as well. And then we're going to see some of those showers even trying to work their way eventually later on this Halloween weekend up into parts of the Midwest and Great Lakes states. Here's a look at temperatures this afternoon. We're going to see those temperatures 60s and 70s across the eastern half of the country's 50s up across parts of the north and west. That's a look around the country. Now let's take a look at your select Ag Day cities.
Camp Dix, Kentucky, mostly sunny, high 64 degrees. Going down to Houston, Texas, showers and thunderstorms, high near 72 degrees. And again, pockets of heavy rainfall certainly possible. Cut Bank, Montana, breezy, mostly cloudy, high in the low 50s. Right now, more than 60,000 FFA members and supporters from around the country are in Indianapolis this week. They're taking part in the 95th Annual National FFA Convention. Educational events like the Career Expo are where students can learn more about the wide array of agricultural jobs available. Various universities were on hand to visit with students about what they offer students to prepare them for a future in the industry like at K-State. We need people in those careers because otherwise we aren't going to be able to kind of keep up with the growing population and no matter whether it's Ag Ed, we need to teach students about what agriculture has to offer them. So it kind of starts from the beginning and then to those and production, you know, facilities that need to be run. Because agriculture is such a huge thing. Um, it supplies everything. It supplies your food. It supplies uh, just like your basic needs, the protein that you need, the vegetables, like you wouldn't have all of that stuff if you didn't have agriculture. The convention ends on Saturday with the election of new National FFA officers. Still ahead, what would college football be without a mascot? I'm Charles Denny, a new mascot for the University of Tennessee. Not this guy, but a real blue tick hound named Smokey 11, and he gets great vet care. That story coming up on Ag Day. Farmer to Farmer, the Conservation at Work video series features real stories, real successes, real quick. See what's possible at farmers.gov conservation. Making his debut soon, possibly before the end of the football season, a new mascot for the University of Tennessee Volunteers. As Charles Denny reports, Smokey 11 will be the latest in a long line of blue tick hounds on the sidelines of Neyland Stadium in Knoxville. Friendly and energetic, Smokey 11 soon takes his place in UT athletic history. This handsome pup has beautiful coloring, and his personality and those ears are the reasons he was chosen as the new mascot for UT. Here he visits the UT College of Veterinary Medicine for a wellness checkup. The pup is only a year old, so he's very healthy. And Dr. Ng says as he grows, they will continue to assess his lifestyle and needs. What's he doing on a day-to-day -day basis? Is he going out uh, for hikes out into the woods? Do we have to maybe talk about his tick prevention, flea and tick prevention a little bit more carefully? Do we have to think about infectious diseases? We mentioned what was perhaps his most notable feature, those floppy ears, and Smokey can be susceptible to infections. So we're always taking a look on in there and talking about, hey, do we need treatments? Do we need preventative care such as regular ear cleanings? There are now 11 of these statue Smokies around campus, one for each dog who's held the job of mascot. Appropriately, this newest one, number 11, is right across the street from the College of Veterinary Medicine. UT adopted a blue tick hound as its sideline mascot in 1953 
and many of these dogs have been cared for at UTCBM over the years. Junior is the offspring of Smokey 10, about to start enjoying football on a big screen after working every game since 2013. It's expected Smokey 11 will serve his mascot duties a decade or so, just like his pops, the young'un following a tradition of sweet dogs with a high-profile job. This is Charles Denny reporting. All right, thanks, Charles, and that's all the time we have this morning. Sure glad you tuned in. From all of us here at Ag Day, I'm Clint Griffiths. Have a great day. Have fun.